The book of 1 Timothy is a book that, that focuses a lot on doctrine and how that impacts our daily lives. We've been going through the book of 1 Timothy now several weeks, and we've made it to chapter 3. We're getting close to midway through. As a matter of fact, we'll be midway through after this morning's message, the book of 1 Timothy. So we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we're going to read the entire chapter this morning, verses 1 through 16 together, talking about the character of leaders in the church. So as we're catching up a little bit of where we've been, if you've missed some of these messages, you can go back and read 1 Timothy chapter 1 and chapter 2. What we found in chapter 1 is there's some dissension and division amongst people in the church because of false teaching that is going on, false doctrine that's being taught. And a lot of this false teaching is is ambiguous. We don't know exactly what's being taught. There are some clues as to what's happening, but what we found is there appears to be some arrogant individuals in the church who are are teaching things contrary to scripture as if they were truth. They're teaching things that uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1 tells us they know nothing about. Um, It's causing division and divisiveness, which is a true sign of false teaching. If it's causing division and divisiveness, you need to look and see what is true and what is right. And so Paul is writing to his son in the faith, Timothy, and he's saying we need to make sure we get the doctrine right. And then in chapter 2, it continues to talk about some of these these divisions and this divisiveness and how it it plays out in the church and how the church needs to, to respond in truth. And so there's instructions on how to pray faithfully how we can be people of prayer, praying for all of those, even those who are in authority over us and maybe, maybe causing persecution or harm to us. We're to pray for everyone. And there's instructions on how men are to pray and, and how they are to worship in the assembly. There's instructions for how women are to pray and worship in the assembly. And as we're looking at instructions for worship, we're reminded that the character of the individual is of utmost importance. A lot of the characteristics and instructions for worship boil down to to how we live our daily lives, how we function as individuals. And then the transition that we'll read this morning into chapter 3 is is how that character is not only applied to the people of the church, but the leadership of the church as well. We're going to go basically verse by verse. A couple of times we'll take two verses at a time, but but I want to read through it just simply verse by verse as we look at instructions for overseers or pastors, instructions for for deacons, and then then we're going to look a little bit about what the church is supposed to be and how the church is going to exist. So the first thing we're discussing in in chapter 3 is what a pastor should be. You know, a lot of times it's a blessing to be able to deliver and prepare a sermon that God has worked and convicted on my heart more than he's convicted on the congregation. This happens more often than you know. There is many, many times I stand up here in the pulpit going, Lord, thank you for dealing with me through the week. Now help me to be faithful as I share that to others. I can promise you that God does more correction in my life than he ever does in your life because of the sermons that are preached on Sunday morning. And this is one of those sermons that, that I had to really ask, God, this is instructions for pastors. 
Now, don't zone out, please, because the temptation is going to be to say, I'm not a pastor, and I can kind of coast through. Pastor Trey is going to tell us what he's convicted over and what he's supposed to be, and when he's done, he'll get to me later. That's not the purpose of God's Word. If you remember, these letters were intended to be read to the entire church because God works and moves through not only what a pastor should be, but how a church views and sees a pastor as well. Starting in verse 1 of 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul writes, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. And this is an important introduction and segue into instructions for overseers and deacons. Beginning with a clarification and a definition of what an overseer is. The terms overseer, pastor, shepherd, bishop, and elder are often interchanged all throughout Paul's writings. There are sometimes even in the same verse, Paul will call the same person an elder and a shepherd or an overseer and a pastor, or, or he'll combine these terms to make it clear that an overseer is, is the person who holds the office of pastor amongst the congregation. And in a church uh, like First Baptist, there is currently one pastor overseer but in times past and in other churches, there are multiple pastors and overseers in a church. There have been times in the history of First Baptist that we have had a, a youth pastor. And down the road, if there's a time that we are able to call a youth pastor, I will be the first to tell you that he is a co-pastor overseer and worthy of the same respect and honor as a senior pastor or overseer. These are instructions for the men who are responsible to lead and shepherd a congregation. It's a, it's a job, quite honestly, if I can be a little vulnerable this morning. This is an extremely taxing job. Now, everybody has trouble at work, and so we're not going to compare one versus the other. But the role of a pastor involves specific attacks that don't always come to other people. I've spoken to several pastors recently, some of them that you know well. I've talked to my father-in-law often. I uh, got to sit and talk to a pastor just uh, this weekend who's a former pastor of mine. I know in our church, now some of you have children who are pastors and serving as, as ministers. And so now we understand, many of you understand, the, the special attacks that Satan loves to throw at a pastor. And there are times, quite honestly, that your pastor is overwhelmed and, and won't tell you he's overwhelmed because... Because it's not fitting for the unity of the church. I, I want to share with you just kind of some testimonies recently of, of things that I've talked to. Of, well, one pastor who has, has basically been run out of his church and is trying to start at a new church. And his family's hurting and he's burdened. And, he's, and, and listening to him talk, the encouragement in his voice it is something that I, I can't fathom and understand. How, how the hurt he experienced is is now transitioned to joy. And I'm praying for his new congregation as he goes and he serves. I've got another pastor friend of mine who, who years ago uh, was faithfully serving his church and, and his wife left him for someone else. And he struggled through leading a church and leading his family and tried to step away for a time. And, and the burdens that, that he had placed on him from within the church and without the church were overwhelming. There are pastors who leave the ministry 
regularly. Of the, the young men that I graduated Bible college from, I would venture to say less than half are serving at a church today. The average lifespan of a pastor at a church is somewhere around four years. Every four years, a pastor on average will move. Just Friday, as I'm talking to, to a former pastor of mine who's serving in the Louisville area, he told me, he said, Trey, I'll tell you, and all of my experience, year seven of pastoring, if you can make it to year seven of pastoring, it's the hardest. And I don't know what it is about it, but it's like that year seven that things just seem to, to get difficult and, and hard. Pastors are, are suffering from depression, are suffering from anxiety. In the midst of a pandemic, we see an uptick in pastors who are not only leaving the ministry, but, but taking more drastic measures, and some of them tragically and wrongfully ending their own lives. And so you read a verse like 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. I share that with you because we read a verse that says, anyone who aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. I just want to be very transparent this morning that it doesn't always feel so noble. Many of you have had conversations with your children as pastors or your good friends as pastors, and you understand sometimes being a pastor doesn't feel noble, and we need a reminder what Paul tells us of the blessings of serving as an overseer. Friday night, I talked about sitting next to a former pastor of mine. It was actually at a wedding of a former student of mine. Can I tell you the blessing it was to see young men who I've not seen in close to 10 years come up and give me a hug and say, thank you so much. Now, some of them are now called to ministry and are serving in ministry. The man who got married, I say, man, he was in eighth grade when I had him in my youth group. He got married and he grabbed me and said, I got to be in your shoes. I served as a, an interim youth pastor, as an intern youth pastor at a church that I just served at and just wrapped that up before the, the wedding. And, and I've got to do ministry and serve alongside of other pastors. I, I get to see how God has, has worked in through these young men. Some of you all know that one of the missionaries we support actually serves as a missionary in the Middle East. We He's in a dangerous area. We won't share his name. I'd love to tell you when it's not being live streamed. He's a former student of mine. And to see him serving on the mission field, he calls me and says, sometimes it's lonely, but God is faithful. To see how God has used him to serve. I tell you, some of you all have been able to come up to me and give me a hug and just say, I love you, Pastor. And I'm thankful for what you do. It's a reminder that being an overseer and a pastor is, is hard but it's a noble task. It's one that's not for the faint of heart, and every word of encouragement you've ever given me has meant more to me than you know. I'm thankful for a church that loves their pastor. I am. Paul says, anyone who aspires to be an overseer or a pastor, he desires a noble task, and then he goes into some qualifications. Not only is it a noble task, but because it's a noble task, there are certain guidelines you must follow. So in verse 2, he begins by saying several things. An overseer, therefore, must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, and able to teach. This is the beginning of his introduction. These are the things that an overseer or pastor must possess. Above reproach means that while there are, are places that some people go and there's a line that some people can get near, a pastor must avoid that line. 
There are things, quite honestly, that in Christ I have the liberty to do. We have the liberty to do. But as a pastor, we must not do those things. We must avoid not just the appearance of evil, but the appearance of the appearance of evil. You must live a lifestyle as a pastor that separates yourself so far from the world that nobody questions your faithfulness to the Word of God. Then, Paul says, he must be the husband of one wife. We're going to talk a little bit more about this when we get to the qualifications of a deacon. But the phrase is the same. The phrase literally is, a man of one woman. This is literally a man who is invested in his wife and his family. It's the end-all, be-all to biblically love his wife. It also is a reminder that a pastor is required to be male. We talked about this last week. This word husband can be translated man, and no matter how you translate it, it comes back to the same biblical principle we discussed last week, male leadership. Third, he says, a pastor, an overseer, must be sober-minded, clear-headed, must not be bogged down by addiction, and he's going to give us the negative form of that here in the next verse. A pastor must be self-controlled, must be someone who is able to keep himself in check, must be a, a, a man who, who fights the urge to be emotionally irrational or sometimes even emotionally rational. Must bite his tongue when he needs to bite his tongue. He must not lash out and be angry. It says he must be a respectable individual. I, I believe that this is someone who is respectable not just inside the church but outside, and he's going to share more of that later. A pastor is one to be hospitable. And I think this is one that, that maybe loses some meaning in the 21st century. When, when the pastor is called to be hospitable, this is actually a counter-cultural teaching. All Christians are called to be hospitable. And, and this is really radical because in this time, in the first century, there were not a lot of individual places where you could, where you could find hospitality. There were, were not inns all over and the inns that were present were often places of ill repute. They were not places you wanted to hang out and be. So hospitality was a big deal. Opening up your home and letting people come into your home was a big deal. Now in the 21st century, we have all sorts of places you can stay and all sorts of, of, of lodges, and, and maybe it's not the same as letting people spend the night at your house, but instead it's a, an idea to be countercultural, where the world pushes people away, a pastor welcomes people in. Where a world says, look out for yourself, a pastor looks out for others. Then it says he must be able to teach. This is one of the the characteristics and the qualifications, it's not listed for a deacon or, or elsewhere in Scripture. It's listed for a pastor. Specifically, is able to know the Word of God well enough that he can proclaim it to others. This is just the beginning as Paul rips off this band-aid of, of qualifications. And to be honest with you, as a pastor and an overseer, I already get overwhelmed when I look at this list. We don't have time to go into all the details of each and every one of these words and how they should play out. It's a reminder that the work of an overseer and a pastor must be above reproach, separate and different and set apart in a way that honors God without question. In verse 3, he gets into some negative commandments. 
He says, an overseer should not be a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, and not a lover of money. The not a drunkard one always makes me laugh a little bit. That's the easiest one for me to keep in this. I want you to know you have a pastor at First Baptist Church who is not a drunkard, okay? As a matter of fact, I don't know very many pastors who struggle with this one. I can't say I don't know any pastors or haven't heard of any pastors, but not being a drunkard is not real difficult for most ministers. But it's a reminder not just not to be addicted to alcohol, but not to be addicted to anything. Not to have anything that would master you the way an alcoholic beverage would master you. A pastor should not be someone who is, is given himself over to anything that would pull him away from the work of God. Timothy is told that a pastor should not be violent, but gentle. Someone who is able to, to control his anger and physically restrain himself, treat people with, with love and with kindness. Building on that, Timothy says, not only should a pastor not be violent and, and not be punching people, but he should not even be quarrelsome. A pastor doesn't need to be argumentative and looking for fights. A pastor is not to be someone, then finally, who's not, he's not supposed to be a lover of money. It, it's funny because we, we like to tease with our pastor friends about uh, about a pastor's salary, and, and, and we, we joke a little bit about how, how pastors are, are meant to be kept poor, and we laugh, and I'm thankful that that time in the church has pretty well passed. Most pastors are not intentionally kept in poverty, and I will say I, I'm thankful because most pastors I know are not intentionally seeking out financial gain. We see some. As a matter of fact, many of you are watching on the live stream right now, I may be one of the few TV evangelists that's speaking this morning that is not out for dishonest gain. <laughs> a pastor's goal is, is not to be someone who looks to have more, but is someone who loves to serve and be generous. Then in verses 4 and 5, the shift focuses to his house. He manages his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for the church? I think it's interesting that so far we've heard a rapid-fire list of qualifications. Be this, be this, be this, don't be this, don't be this, don't be that. And then he pauses and he says about the pastor's family. Let me take, let me take two verses, a full sentence. Manage and love your family well. I want to go ahead and let you know in case you're confused and wondering my first priority is not you all as a congregation. I love you all, and you're a high priority. My first priority is sitting right here with my family. That's, that's what Paul says. You have to make sure your family is taken care of. I, I love, I've got a couple of my kids sitting here in the sanctuary, one of them who's wild and uh, unsubmissive right now. But, but it says must keep his children submissive. My own children, this is part of the sermon to you two. When I correct you, it's because I love you. It's because I, I want to see you grow in the faith. Every single parent is called to be that to their children, and a pastor even more so. Can I tell you, there's a lot of pressures not just put on a pastor, but put on a pastor's family. Because we have unruly children sometimes. My three-year-old is not in the sanctuary right now, and that's because he's a little unruly at times. Every once in a while, he gets a wild hair, and in the middle of a quiet time of a service, he yells out chicken butt. He does that sometimes, right? Some of you all have experienced that. I, 
I'm thankful for a church who looks at my children and doesn't see them as, as perfect pillars and models of how every pastor's kid should be, but sees them as children. A pastor is, is called to focus his attention and his priority first on his own household. If he cannot manage his own household, how is he going to care for the church? The greatest compliment you could give me, quite honestly, will never be great sermon, great leadership, way to lead the church. It's going to be you have amazing kids. And I... amazing kids. He continues on in verse 6 to say, have your family, a loving family, invest in them, and then and there's a testing period. An overseer or a pastor cannot be a recent convert, someone new to the faith. Literally, it's someone who's, who's green and inexperienced in the faith. This does not assume, by the way, that someone who's been a Christian for a long time is mature enough to be a pastor. As a matter of fact, Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews reminds us that there are some people who have, who have been identifying as Christians for decades and are still infants in the faith. Instead, it's the opposite. It's to tell us if you're a brand new convert, there's so much more to grow in and learn. You're not ready to lead a church yet. What happens when you're a recent convert and you're thrust into a position of pastoral leadership? Paul warns that we'll be puffed up. We'll have conceit. And then this phrase will fall into the condemnation of the devil. Is that a strong statement to you? That feels like a strong statement to me. It's not a conversation piece that we typically would have as I'm talking through and counseling someone. Be careful that you don't fall into the condemnation of the devil. That just seems a little harsh to me. And yet Paul writes it strongly to remind us that arrogance and conceit because of immaturity leads us to fall. I don't see this to mean to fall away from the faith. I don't see this to mean to be condemned to hell. I see this to mean the condemnation that the devil throws at you, the accusations that the devil makes. It's really easy to get conceited and built up and for the devil to come behind and humble you and remind you of all of your faults. It's a reminder that if you're not strong in the faith, the attacks of the devil will come and you will fall. Verse 7 says, Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into the disgrace. And again, a reference to the devil, that he may not fall into the snare of the devil. The reputation of the pastor must be strong within the church, but it must be equally strong outside of the church. There should be a good reputation in the community. I think I've shared with you all before a previous church that I pastored in Indiana was a great little congregation. Loved the Lord. Some great people there. Their previous pastor had really done a great job of making sure everyone in the community knew that they hated the community. <laughs> Anytime I said, I'm the pastor of Batesville Baptist Church, he said, oh, that church. That pastor there, boy, he really, he really distanced himself from us. He really, he really spit some nasty things about our community. He really ran down people. It was so hard to be a pastor of a church that when you invited people to, they said, oh, I know how that church is. I, I've got to be honest with you. There's a lot on a pastor's shoulder because when he has a poor reputation in the community, the church has a poor reputation in the community. It hurts the entire church 
when the pastor is, is running down individuals and running down people. Well, the pastor must be someone who is, is faithful and that the community can see that he is faithful. As we read these first seven verses, it is extremely humbling to be a pastor and say, I fall so short in so many ways. I'm thankful that the command is to be above reproach and it's not to be perfect. Because there are areas as we read through here that I have had to examine in my own heart in different times in my own ministry and say, Lord, convict me. Even as I prepared this message for this morning, there were certain phrases that I just stopped and prayed through. God, I'm weak and I need your strength. Reminded of verse 1, whoever aspires to be an overseer, he desires a noble task, a difficult task, one that he certainly will fall and fail. But I'm thankful that when I as a pastor fail, God never does. He goes on to talk about what a deacon should be, a deacon within the church. Deacons were actually begun and started, instituted in the book of Acts when there was some some discrepancy on how widows in the church should be served. There was some fighting among the church and some of the women in the church. And so they appointed seven men, godly men, who could help serve the widows and kind of quelch a fire. This word deacon literally means servant. As a matter of fact, if we properly translated the word deacon, we wouldn't even write the word deacon. We would just write the word servant. They're literally called servants. And that's what a deacon is. Someone to serve the people of God. And he uses a phrase in transition, deacons likewise. This word likewise is important because all of the qualifications for an overseer are very similar to the qualifications of a deacon. There's really one major one that is not in there for a deacon, that is in there for a pastor, and that is be able to teach. But even at First Baptist Church, our deacons have made it a point to make sure they're able to fill in, and many of them have at different times. What we find is that deacons must have the same above reproach that the pastor has. We have a tendency to, to lift the pastor to a level that he cannot attain, we have a tendency to do the same with deacons, to lift them to a place of perfection. We have some really great deacons at our church that are imperfect and fallen people. But if they will serve the Lord and be what God has called them to be, we can see that it's a noble task. It says deacons must be dignified. It's another phrase or word that would mean respected or respectable. People who, who, who carry themselves in a way that people find respect. They must be double-tongued, that is, not liars or gossips. This is so important because they, they are privy to information that the rest of the church doesn't have by necessity. People hurt in the church, it's the deacon's responsibility to serve them without spreading that hurt to others. A deacon must be able to, to be faithful in truth. A deacon, likewise, must not be addicted to much wine. I'm a little disappointed that a pastor can't be a drunkard, but a deacon can't be addicted to much wine, right? Pastor, don't drink it. Deacons, just a little bit. That's kind of what it feels like here. I think these phrases are interchangeable, right? I think what it's saying is, deacon, don't give yourself to anything that would master you. A deacon is not to be greedy for dishonest gain, I've never met a deacon who was paid for being a deacon. They may exist somewhere. I've never met one. 
As a matter of fact, I don't think in the first century that they were paid either. So this idea of dishonest gain isn't the same as the lover of money. Instead, it's, it's the lover of other things. Often it manifests itself in power or responsibility. A deacon is not to look for ways that he can promote himself or elevate himself above anyone else. He is to humble himself and serve the church. Then in verse 9, they must hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. This is a very fancy way of saying a deacon needs to be a man in the Word of God and understand the Word of God better than, than he ever thought he could. There's mysteries in the Bible that we don't know unless we delve into and study. Just this past week, I was listening to a podcast where the comment was made. The question was asked, can anyone just pick up the Bible and read it and get what they need to know just by a simple reading through? And the answer was yes and no. Yes, the Bible is simple enough that anyone can read it. But the comment was made, and I love this, that the Bible was meant not just to be read, the Bible was meant to be studied. And a deacon needs to not just read the Bible, but needs to ask the questions that cause him to delve deeper into the Scriptures, that cause him to connect strings and themes throughout the Bible, that, that cause him to, to say, I don't know the answers and I want to find more. The mysteries of the faith need to be known so that they can be lived out. And knowing that doctrine causes him to live faithfully and have a clear conscience. Like a pastor, a deacon needs to examine his own heart and his own life and say, are there things that I need to repent of that I'm falling short, not only in my role as a deacon, but in my faithfulness to Christ? Verse 10, let them also be tested first and let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. There's another testing period for deacons. Not anybody should be plugged into the role of deacon. It should be someone who is faithfully serving already, who has shown himself to be faithful, to shown himself to be, and here's that phrase, blameless. Blameless does not mean without sin. Blameless means without unconfessed sin, without, without continual sin, without habitual sin. Someone who acknowledges the sin in his life and clings to forgiveness in Christ. Verses 11 and following, 11 in particular, say their wives must likewise be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. It's interesting to me that a, a pastor's wife is not addressed, but, but a deacon's wife is. Now, I, I will say, I, I think that that doesn't mean that there are no responsibilities of a pastor's wife. I would think this likewise connection between pastors and deacons, this applies to a pastor's wife and a deacon's wife. But for some reason, Paul felt the necessity to address the wives of deacons. And like their husbands, they must be dignified, not slanders, gossips, or double-tongued. They must be sober-minded, not addicted to anything that would master them. And they must be faithful in all things. Like a pastor, a deacon's family is his first priority. To invest in his wife is more important than investing in the church. Investing in his family is more important than investing in a congregation. And a, a deacon's wife is one who is supportive and partners alongside. Verse 12, let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their own children and their own households well. Again, husbands, it's a reminder that the role of deacon is meant to be filled by a male. This phrase, husband of one wife, 
It has a lot of controversy around it. There are several interpretations of what this could mean. And some of you are, are very curious. And I want to tell you, we need a deeper study than just throwing something out there. But let me give you several interpretations of what this means. Some people believe husband of one wife means, means the husband of one wife right now. A one-woman man. And the, the idea of that is that there was polygamy going on in the first century, and husband of one wife means you can't have two wives, or three wives, or four wives, or five wives. I think that that's kind of a shallow way of looking at this verse. A second belief is the opposite extreme. It means that the, the husband of one wife means one wife ever. So if your, your spouse and you are divorced, or if your spouse has passed away, or if you were remarried in any sense, um, this disqualifies you automatically from being a deacon. And there are those who believe uh, that, that this means a literal reading is one man, one woman, and anything different disqualifies you. If you do that, then of course you have to disqualify remarried widowers. You have to disqualify a lot of, of men who otherwise you would find leading in deacon roles at different churches. There's a third way that's somewhere in between. And that is it leans to the value of a husband of one wife for the entire life. But an understanding that the focus of this verse is on how he is living currently, not how he's lived before. This is the only verse that is often used to be applied to the history of an individual. None of the other verses are. A husband or, or a deacon must be this today. A husband must do this today. A pastor must be this today. A pastor must be this today. Must can't do this today. And then all of a sudden to throw a curveball and say, and in his past, a pastor must not, is, is a difficult reading. There are many of you in this church who, who fall in one of those three areas. Maybe there's a, a sliding scale in our church. And this morning, my intention is not to, to address that and say this is exactly what you should believe. It's to remind us that a deacon must be a faithful husband first. He must care about his children first. A man who does not put a high value on his family is unfit for the role of servant deacon. Verse 13 says, Those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. As you have respect for an overseer or a pastor, you ought to have respect for a deacon. They're men who God has called to serve, and they're worthy of a good standing, not only for themselves, but a good standing if they serve well before the throne room of God. The qualifications for both pastors and for deacons, you'll notice, are not job descriptions. And maybe we could have started off just by reminding ourselves that nowhere in the Bible is there a job description for a deacon anywhere. That's why deacons serve in so many different ways in different churches. Instead, what is Paul's focus on for a pastor and a deacon? It's the character and the quality of the man. There are certain tasks that he'll have to carry out, but more important than his job is his standing before God. Is he faithful? Is he a man that follows God or not? Paul then gives us a glimpse into to what the church is to be as these men serve and lead the congregation. Uh, really, there's a beautiful hymn at the end that I, I want to close with in a moment. 
a gospel hymn that is unbelievably rich in theology. But, but first, listen to the description of the church that Paul gives us in verses 14 and 15. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, how the church is to be which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress that is a foundation of the truth. Three descriptive words, phrases here about the church itself. One, it is a household of God. The men called to lead as pastor and deacons are literally leading God's very house, his dwelling place. The church has become where Jesus Christ is present. In the hearts of the believers gathered together, this is God's house. I realize the church is not a building, and it is not. I want you to know very clearly that these walls that surround us do not mark the dimensions of the church. But because we choose to meet in this building, there is something special about us being in here. Not because of the walls, but because of who's in here. You make up the household of God. He says a church is, is not a church of the dead, but it's a church of the living God. We gather together to worship. We do look behind us to a cross and realize there was a, a God who died for us, who was crucified, who lost all life on the cross. His physical breath was gone. His physical heart stopped beating his physical brain stopped sending signals to the rest of his body. But we do not serve a God who stayed dead. When we gather together as a household of God, we do so to celebrate the living God who has conquered even death. And as we gather together as a church, we're reminded that, that Jesus Christ is the pillar and the foundation of the truth we proclaim. This word buttress is literally just the foundation. And the church serves as the foundation basis of how we grow in our faith. Why does Paul tell us how a pastor should live, how a deacon should live, and what the church is? It's because he wants us to know how we ought to behave. Understand the character that we're to have and the identity of who we are as the church. Verse 16 closes with a a beautiful hymn. This was most likely a song that was sung in the first century. Paul writes it down for us. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh. He was vindicated by the Spirit. He was seen by the angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Paul says this is how a church and the character and the leaders of the church ought to behave. For what purpose? So that the world would know that Jesus Christ is resurrected and has died for them. Of all the phrases in here, the one that I love the most is vindicated by the Spirit. It's a fancy phrase and terminology. You know what Paul is writing? You know what this hymn is proclaiming? That the work of Jesus Christ was enough. It was acceptable to God. That the Holy Spirit saw the sacrifice that Christ made on the cross and said, the work is finished. Salvation can be had. There's a calling to leaders in the church, pastors, deacons, those who are serving in ways that are, are leading our congregation to live faithful 
godly, high-character lives. Why? Because the world needs to know that Jesus is enough. The church needs to know that Jesus is enough. You, as a church, as a household of God, need to know that Jesus Christ is enough. This morning, as we think about the roles and the character of pastors and deacons and leaders in the church, can we remind ourselves that we want to live holy and godly lives so that everyone will understand and know that Jesus Christ died for them and that he is enough.